Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for your welcome. Uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer as we begin our study of God's Word tonight. And perhaps just before we do that, I could encourage you to turn back to Acts chapter 1, because we're going to begin uh, there. Acts chapter 1, I think that's on page 1092. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that we meet in the name of your most precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you that you have opened our eyes to see his beauty and his magnificence and his majesty. The reality of his rule, that gracious rule that liberates and frees. And how we long that others might come to know it. And how we long that our nation might return to him. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about these things tonight. How we can proclaim and practice the rule and the reign and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us, we pray. In his name. Amen. Well, just in case you missed it, yesterday's times. Christianity on the rack as judge bans public prayer. The Mail, Christianity under attack, anger as two major court rulings go against British worshippers. Today's Sunday Times, editorial, religion has no part to play in politics. What do you make of that? What do you make of that case? What do you make of the coverage? How does it make you feel? Is it anger? As the Daily Mail suggests, is it sadness and regret and lament? Is it perhaps a sense of, well, in a curious way, relief? Relief that uh, all that cultural Christianity, all that confusing cultural Christianity is being pushed aside. And perhaps we face a return to conditions more like the first disciples, the early church faced. Is it despair? Denial about what's really happening. You don't really want to engage with this kind of thing. How does it make you feel? How do you react? It certainly helps us to remember what a relevant question this is. And probably one that's going to become more and more relevant in one sense. Because I don't think this kind of thing is going to go away anytime soon. And it raises uh, for us this question of, well in some way, in a broad sense... How are Christians, how are we as a church, you as a local church, to relate to the political realm? And indeed, more generally, to public life. Now this is a huge subject, and we haven't really, as you can imagine, got uh, time to be in any sense exhaustive. So I hope I'm not going to disappoint you, I'm going to flag that right at the beginning. We are really only going to skate over this issue. And I'm really pleased that we've got Q&A afterwards. I don't have all the answers, but I'm glad that we have opportunity to discuss these things because I'm continuing to think these things through. And in very many ways, I see this time that we've got together now looking at God's word as really the introduction. In many ways, I think it will provoke more questions than it answers. So this is really the introduction rather than the conclusion, the final word. Politics and public life. What is politics? Go to working definition. Where do you turn? 
Wikipedia in the internet age. Politics, according to Wikipedia, is a process by which groups of people make collective decisions. That is, broadly speaking, what we're talking about. Our community life together. How we order our community life. What we say is right and what we say is wrong, what we value, uh, what we prohibit, what we allow. And that's the kind of thing that uh, I envisage that we'd be thinking about and talking about, but perhaps defined more widely than just narrowly in the domain of parliament, perhaps, or a government. I'm really going to be hoping to open up areas that are relevant to politics in a general sense, public life in a general sense, perhaps local government, including perhaps as well the law, the media, where many of the discussions and debates about what kind of society we want to be, what's going to take priority, happen. So in a very general sense, public and political discourse, dialogue, decision-making. And my hope is that as we look at a few passages in the book of Acts, we will see that political and public engagement are not only legitimate for Christians, but really necessary and inevitable. That the political and public discourse is a key area in which we're to be involved and one that uh, probably inevitably we will be. It's by no means the only context, of course, where as Christians and as churches we should be engaged. It's by no means the only context in which we're to bring the gospel to bear. But neither should it be the only context in which we don't bring the gospel to bear. And as I've hinted already, I think that uh, this whole area actually provides a wonderful opportunity for us, with a little bit of imagination and creativity perhaps, with a responsiveness, if we'll take it, to articulate the beauty and the magnificence and the reality of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. But also, where the opportunity arises, we have an obligation to do so, an obligation to engage, because the gospel itself demands it. Now, as I've hinted already, we're going to focus for a few minutes on the book of Acts. Again, it's not exhaustive. Uh, it's really actually going to be very much uh, skating over things. There is an outline on the uh, handout. You'll be relieved to know that uh, actually we're only going to go through it once. So we're only going to look at verse, uh, numbers 1 to 3, not 4, 5 and 6. Uh, so we've only got uh, three headings to consider. I won't put you through it twice. Don't worry. First thing I want to observe from the book of Acts. The risen Lord Jesus makes political demands. The risen Lord Jesus makes political demands. And that is to say that the reality of the rule of Jesus Christ has implications for the political realm. The political and the public realm are not immune from the claims of Jesus Christ. And that means that, in this sense, Jesus Christ makes claims and is relevant, not just, as it were, to people as a bunch of individuals, but to nations and communities. His rule has implications for the political realm, for the law, for the laws that we make, the laws that we practice, for the policies that we pursue, for our community life. And in short, Jesus Christ demands to be recognised, not just by individuals, but by nations and communities. Let me read uh, the beginning of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, I'll read it fairly quickly. 
In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Here, so right at the beginning of Acts, we get, as it were, an insight into what's going to drive this whole narrative of the book. Right at the heart of Acts, and weave throughout it, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Implication, he is the one. Jesus is the ruler. He is the rescuer. He is the one anointed by God. Chosen. And he has been raised. And having been raised, he has ascended. And what is the consequence? He ascends because he transcends all others. He transcends all human authorities and human rulers. He's above all human government in that sense. And his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of all. It guarantees the fact that he is the judge to whom all will give account. And it guarantees that he is the one through whom, or, uh, th- through whom all who turn to him can be saved. There is no other name. Now it's this message that rips through, isn't it, the narrative of Acts, bringing transformation The message that Jesus is the ultimate Lord. And right from the beginning we have to note that that is a political statement. That he is the ultimate ruler. Jesus relativises the rule of all others. No one else's rule is absolute. Jesus' rule is absolute. And he relativises the rule of all others. Kings, governors, parliaments. People, in the case of democracy. And as uh, Abraham Kuyper said, one time Dutch Prime Minister, it means that we can say with certainty, as Kuyper said, here I quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So the resurrection means that Jesus reigns over all. And that includes the political realm. Now the disciples sense a new era has happened. A new era is being embarked upon because Jesus has been raised from the dead. But their vision is too narrow. So Jesus has been speaking to them of the kingdom of God and they say, 
verse 6, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What does Jesus do? He changes their perspective. Verse 7, he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He speaks of a new power, the Spirit, and he speaks of a new priority. They are to be witnesses, testify to Jesus, the risen Jesus. And where are they to do it? Not just in Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Now the point I want to highlight is this. I think it's quite easy for us, perhaps because we live in such an individualistic age, to think that what's really going on here is that the disciples have talked about Israel, a political entity, and Jesus shifts their attention elsewhere, and therefore that really the whole kind of notion of God being interested in political entities has been thrown out the window. But the point I think is different here. The point is that now that Jesus is raised from the dead and he is declared as the universal Lord over all nations, well then, testimony to him is not to be confined to one particular nation, but to all nations. In fact, in fulfilment of God's creation plan, is coming to fulfilment uh, through the preaching of the gospel, that all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. What does that mean for human government? It means that, in that sense, Jesus doesn't replace human government, doesn't replace political structures, doesn't replace the notion of nations or communities, but he relativizes them, as we've said. And the kind of program that we see working its way through Acts as the gospel comes. It's not one of toppling governments or toppling communities, community rulers, so much as transforming and demanding transformation. The Christian preacher is not a revolutionary in the sense of saying to a ruler, you must go. The Christian preacher, the church, say not you must go, but you must change. You must now recognise the real ruler, Jesus, or the ultimate ruler. Recognise and repent. And that includes, not just in your private life, but presumably in the business of government as well. It's so important for us to observe that the concept of government is a good thing. The fact that we have government, the fact that community life together is ordered, is a good thing. God institutes government. It's God-given, and it's good. And political structures, and order, and rule, and law are good things. Good gifts of God. And this, uh, that understanding, I think, that lies behind the instruction in the New Testament to be good citizens, to be submissive to authorities, because authority, government, rule, were part of God's good plan. And when the gospel comes, it doesn't just wash all that away. 
and pull out all the structure. The gospel, in that sense, doesn't challenge the concept. It's true that uh, others do. But the gospel doesn't. But if it doesn't, tr- if it doesn't challenge the concept, it does challenge the character. It will often challenge the content and the character of government. Hinging and calling for a recognition of Jesus and the character and the content of his rule to be reflected in human government. And when that happens, that is a wonderful thing. The more that the wonderful character and content of the rule of Jesus is reflected in the government of a nation or a community, that is a wonderful thing. Government is at its best, it seems to me, when it consciously recognises the rule of Jesus. Now this is where I think we are very privileged to live in this country. Because in the UK, in principle, still today, something we often forget even as Christians, is we have a government and a structure that consciously recognises the rule of God and of Jesus Christ. It may be that uh, in practice, and it is indeed the case, that there is something of a crisis of confidence about that in society. But in principle, we do. And in fact, Jesus has had a huge influence on our nation for good, for the good of all. You can't really turn anywhere in terms of our cultural heritage, whether it's literature, art, architecture, music, our welfare system, our education system, our health system, certainly our laws, freedoms, liberties. So much of that which we often, even as Christians, take for granted actually bears the hallmark of the influence of Jesus Christ. It is true to say that more than any other person, he has influenced our nation and is still acknowledged formally in our political and legal system. There is a crisis of confidence today. There is a determined effort to squeeze him out of public life. And I think there's a crisis of confidence in the church as to this whole area. Is it, would it, is it really a desirable thing? Is it really a legitimate thing that Jesus has a part to play in our public life? We want to go back here and say, yeah, because it's right and it's real. And the rule of Jesus is a wonderful thing. And the more that government self-consciously recognises and reflects the rule of Jesus Christ, not only is that right, but it is good. Honouring to God and good for humanity, good for the people of this nation, because he is never an oppressor. As I'll touch on a little later, it seems that uh, the church has really stepped back in many ways from making the case for Jesus and the benefit of his influence on our nation because it's unsure of whether he should legitimately make the claim. I want to say and to encourage us that it is a right and a good ambition to have government that reflects more and more, as much as possible, the rule of Jesus. And it flows from the gospel, the reality that Jesus is raised from the dead that he is the right and the perfect ruler. So first point, the risen Lord Jesus makes political demands. He does make claims on our political life. Second, perhaps a bit more briefly, the risen Lord Jesus precipitates 
political dilemma. Precipitates political dilemma or crisis. Because the reality is that when the gospel is preached and practiced, when the gospel is declared and demonstrated, it challenges the surrounding culture, including the political structures. And it tends to create crisis. We'll see later that that actually creates opportunity for proclamation. But it precipitates something of a crisis and a dilemma. And perhaps more so, the more out of line government and the surrounding culture is with the principles of Jesus' rule. But when the gospel is being, by the people of God, is being preached and practiced, when it is actually transforming lives, it does precipitate that crisis because it exposes the insufficiency of a government and of a nation that is not recognising Jesus. And the more out of line it is, perhaps, the greater the crisis. We had uh, Acts chapter 4 read for us, uh, page 1095. And uh, you'll remember that uh, what happened here is that uh, Peter and John have been preaching. Peter and John have, uh, have healed someone and they're called before uh, the Sanhedrin. In verse uh, 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It's quite uh, blatant, isn't it? An act of kindness, an act of compassion. Well, that was a dramatic hearing. Turn on, if you will, to uh, Acts chapter 19. And uh, we're not going to read this uh, uh, in, uh, in its entirety, but if you turn over to verse 23, uh, the following page, 1116. You'll see that uh, here the gospel is taking effect and it's affecting, affecting business. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We won't read it all, but effectively a riot uh, erupts and a mob uh, goes and there's uh, great civil unrest in that town. I highlight it because as we go through Acts we see another instance of where the gospel preaching and being practiced actually creates, uh, has a destabilising effect in the culture and ultimately goes before the city authorities. Not because the Christians are revolutionaries, not because the Christians are in that sense pr provoking civil unrest and dissent, but because the gospel is revolutionary. 
Let me say that again. It, it is the gospel that is revolutionary. It is not Christians who are revolutionaries. But the gospel is revolutionary. And in different ways, I think we see this in places throughout Acts. That the preaching of the gospel and the practice of the gospel create a dilemma in society. And they create a dilemma for the ruling authorities, for the political authorities. Because on the one hand, as we saw in Acts chapter 4, and perhaps you can read again if you didn't uh, catch this, they can't dispute what has happened. They're not happy about what has happened, but they can't dispute what has happened, and they can't condemn what has happened. Again, here, it seems that uh, Paul and the others are vindicated, are let off. So the gospel has created a political dilemma, has come to the attention of the authorities, and yet, as on a number of occasions through Acts, actually the Christians are vindicated. They're not the social revolutionaries, even though they preach a gospel that is revolutionary. I want to encourage us to think about that, but I'm aware of uh, time. I want to help us to see that that is to be expected, particularly perhaps in a climate which is, appears to be increasingly hostile to the claims of Jesus. That the practice and the preaching of the gospel will provoke controversy and conflict and commotion and not just perhaps in areas of Christian preaching that we've had case of that uh, this week of a Christian preacher uh, who faced arrest for speaking about sexuality issues, but also in terms of Christian practice of living according to gospel pattern. <coughs> just as uh, the challenge of the gospel came to the behaviour in the area of uh, economics and business in uh, Acts chapter 19, so today there will be challenges of people who want to uphold biblical standards of behaviour and live by them. Think of Owen and Eunice Johns, who were the potential foster carers, who said that they weren't prepared to say to a child in their care, as young as eight, that homosexual practice was right. Or think of someone like Lily Nadelli, who was a civil marriage registrar, uh, and who asked not to be put in a position of conducting civil partnership ceremonies, because she believed that marriage was between a man and a woman, and lost her job. There will be challenges in the area of Christian practice and behaviour. And these issues will cause controversy and conflict and cause dissonance in our culture and perhaps condemnation. And we're to be ready for that. We're to be ready for it. We're to be ready for it not just individually but together. We are to be blameless in it. We're not rebels. We're commanded to be good citizens. Government is a good and God-given thing. So we're to be blameless, not stirring up trouble. And some of us who are kind of natural rebels will need to be reminded of the goodness of government and the right instruction of the Bible to respect and submit to authority. Some of us who are naturally rebellious need to learn to respect. But there will be occasions that we're in Acts 4 where to obey human authority is to go against 
God's authority, perhaps for a social worker, might conclude that they're not prepared to place a child with a same-sex couple because they take God's word seriously and they're convinced that it's not in the child's best interests to be in that environment. There may be other instances, maybe even more blatant instances, where to submit to a human authority would be to go against God's. And in those cases, we need to be bold. We need to be courageous. And we need to submit to the rule of Jesus ahead of the rule of those who would take us away from him. And just as for the rebels, there may be, there needs to be an encouragement to respect and submission. So to some of those of us who are perhaps naturally conservative or cautious, we need to be encouraged encourage one another to be courageous and bold. But in all of this, we need to be ready for the political dilemma and the heat and the cultural pressure that will come on. And we can help be ready by being united, by standing with those who are challenged in our society. Some of those people I mentioned earlier. You may not have done everything as they did it, but I can assure you that they are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they seek to live for him. And we need to be ready to stand with them in our society. Confident that we're standing for Jesus Christ with our brothers and sisters in him. So the gospel is revolutionary. Not because Christians are revolutionary, but because the gospel is real. Because it changes and transforms our environment. And at times that will be culturally destabilising. It will cause cultural dissonance. We need to be prepared to stand with one another. And it will provoke political dilemma. Very often the political authorities will not know what to do. On the one hand they feel they don't like it. But on the other they can't dispute that it's happened. They can't dispute the reality of what they see. And they can't dispute the good behaviour of those who are following the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems to me this gives us a little clue as to the place of the church of churches in the community and in God's plan for the transformation of nations. The role of the church is not in that sense to be above society, kind of governing over. It's not to be aside, completely separate, withdrawn. It's to be in the midst. Because the church and local churches are the first fruits of God's plan for humanity and of the new age to come and of what he uh, seeks and longs for for all people. So the church is to be not, as it were, above or aside, but ahead, showing the new life of God. And as that life spills out at the boundaries, as we preach and as we proclaim and as we practice the love and the rule of God, as it spills out as we're involved in community and in the nation and in society, it will challenge. And sometimes that will bring conflict and controversy. We need to be ready for it. Because the gospel provokes. So, the risen Lord Jesus precipitates political dilemma as his people trust him, speak of him, live for him. Briefly, lastly, the risen Lord Jesus belongs in political discourse. And what I want to draw our attention to here, and we only really have time to skim over this, is that it seems to me that gospel witness demands speaking of Jesus in all the contexts we can find, including the public and the political 
discourse. And the encouragement here is not to be afraid of seeking opportunities to speak Christianly, perhaps in the media, perhaps in contacts of local government or in a school, perhaps in the national scene. Speaking Christianly, not being ashamed to speak Christianly as Christians, not being ashamed to speak of Jesus Christ and giving an apologetic for Jesus, why he's good news for individuals and for, na- and for nations, for society. It seems to me that uh, one of great temptations at the moment is to think that it will really harm our cause. Some of the things that we long for in society, perhaps current at the moment, that marriage is not redefined, uh, that marriage is preserved as the union of one man and one woman. It'd be a great temptation for us to think that it will harm our cause to speak too clearly of Jesus Christ and so to back off from doing that, rather than seeing that as an opportunity to speak of Jesus Christ. But if our ambition is to see the nation here and return to Jesus ultimately, and if that is our confidence that we'll secure a good common life together, then our witness to our nation needs to include speaking of him. And in some way taking the the provocation, those opportunities, those crises, those dilemmas that the gospel provokes, and using those, maximising those opportunities to speak, not just of why people should be free to believe or behave in that way, but actually to speak clearly of Jesus Christ. Not just to try and defend a structure that allows freedom of belief or behaviour, but actually to speak compellingly, clearly, courageously of Jesus Christ. I just need to flag at this point that uh, not all would agree with me on this. Uh, So perhaps we can discuss that in Q&A in a moment or two. But I want to suggest and encourage you to think about this. And to think about uh, how I think Luke, in this book of Acts, points us to this reality. One of the things that's very striking as I read through the book of Acts, and perhaps we miss it, is how... Although the gospel is, and the gospel preachers take the good news of Jesus to individuals and to small groups, and I'm sure that that lots of that happened, many of the encounters that Luke chooses to record for us and point us to are those of where the gospel is brought before those of quite significant cultural and social influence. So centurions, but political rulers... Uh, those in Athens, uh, the uh, philosophers, etc. Uh, and, as I say, political rulers both in terms of uh, Judea and in the Roman world. In fact, much of basically the last quarter of the book is consumed with Paul's defence in trials. We have one of them uh, read to us earlier. And because of time, I'm not uh, actually going to dwell on it. Uh, We'll, if necessary, pull some of this out in questions. But let me uh, just summarise what I was going to uh, help us to think about. It seems to me that Paul's defence in these trials is very thick with Christian explanation, with with bringing the issue back to the person of Jesus Christ and the claim that he has risen from the dead. So it's true that Paul speaks with respect to those who are judging him. It's true that he refutes the charges and 
demonstrates and points to the fact that they're groundless, the charges that are brought against him. But it's true, to me, it seems to me, that he makes the most of the opportunity to repeat his message and to drive it home about the resurrection, about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. He seizes every opportunity, and more than that, he's actually very shrewd at creating opportunities. So he is not afraid to use the legal system, not afraid to use the fact that he is uh, a Roman citizen. Acts 25, uh, for, your, uh, for, for, look, uh, for looking at later, if you like. Uh, but uh, chapter 10, it's not the first time he uses it. Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so as a result of that, he goes off to Rome. Now, I don't think that Paul is concerned in that sense with his own life. But he is concerned with witness to Jesus. And it may be interesting to read through these chapters and see how he seizes every opportunity to speak of Jesus and how he's shrewd in creating new ones, even to go to Rome as he longed to do. Uh, to speak to others of Jesus. And the response is quite intriguing because some of those who heard him in these trials were not the most gentle of rulers, it would seem, from the history books. But actually they don't immediately condemn him or crush him. They're intrigued. In that uh, chapter we uh, had read, chapter 24, you'll remember how uh, some days later, Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. People are intrigued by this man, even rulers. So it seems to me that uh, Paul makes the most of those opportunities. And I think it would be sobering for us to think more about that. And to ask if we have the same gospel Mindset, the same determination to get the gospel out there and to seize the opportunities to make the most of those that are there and even in a sense to create out of them new opportunities. Seems to me this raises some questions for us in our public and our political engagement. There are two challenges. Either we, uh, we withdraw from the public and the political discourse and that I think has happened by the church over the last 20, 30 years, perhaps out of a sense of despair at the speed of decline and the speed of change in our society, or out of uh, denial, but a departure from public engagement. Or for those who've stayed in public engagement, a departure from the gospel, a departure from speaking clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to me the challenge that uh, we face, particularly as we can no longer uh, rely in the main on the existing networks and denominations is to put Jesus Christ back there in the public discourse. There's been a determined effort to squeeze him out and by and large the church has, uh, has allowed that to happen. And the challenge for us is to speak of Jesus Christ, of his, re- of his rule and his rescue. To find new ways, new opportunities to speak of it, new ways to do that, new ways to communicate, both the rule and the rescue of Jesus Christ. That means speaking of both God's standards and God's salvation, of God's pattern and God's power, of speaking of standards, of sin, 
and of salvation. If we don't speak of God's standards, the nation won't understand. And the chances are we'll move in the direction of greater and greater liberalism and license. If we just speak of God's standards, if we just stand up for moral issues, if we just stand up, for example, for marriage, well, the great danger is that our culture will just hear us being moralistic. The great danger is that our society will embrace civic religion and be confused. We need to be speaking passionately and fully about Jesus Christ and speaking both of his standards and his salvation. I'm going to uh, finish in just a moment. We've skipped over a fair amount. I guess that I want to conclude by encouraging us to think of how political and public engagement, whether that's local, at the level of the local council, or perhaps uh, involvement in a school as a school governor, or whether that's joined up together at a more na- in a more national way, in terms of speaking in the media and speaking in parliament, speaking in the legal system, to think about how we can see this as gospel endeavour in a way that complements what we're doing at the individual level as we speak to colleagues or friends, at the local church level as we seek to be a beacon for Jesus in our community, but also at a community, regional, national level, how we can be speaking of Jesus, how we can be speaking gospel truth, so that we see that, as in Acts, the preaching of the gospel is happening at every level of society, and it's happening in a joined-up way, so that we don't see Christian involvement, Christian engagement in public and political life as somehow trying to uphold some moral standards, trying somehow to desperately to hold up some collapsing structure with some scaffolding, whilst we scurry around at the individual and local level uh, doing evangelism, which is absolutely critical and exactly what we should be doing. But rather than seeing this just as an opportunity to hold things up so that they don't collapse, to enable us to continue gospel work at the local level, how we can, with imagination and creativity, see the opportunity at the national level and at the public level to proclaim Jesus, the reality of his rule and his rescue. And I think that with some creativity and imagination, there are those opportunities. But we need to think about them, plan for them, resource them, be creative, be bold, be courageous. And that, I think, is a challenge for us. To bring the message of the gospel to bear. To give an apologetic at the cultural level and the national level for Jesus. To see political and public engagement, perhaps arising from the provocation that the gospel brings at the local level, to see that as, if you like, cultural apologetics, cultural evangelism, speaking and pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as an alternative to evangelism, but part of our evangelistic enterprise that works at every level of society. You've listened very patiently. I've spoken for too long. I'm going to uh, pray, but encourage us to see the implication and the pattern of the risen Lord Jesus. Something as we've just touched on in the book of Acts there, how it rips through, through the society of the day. And along that the same may be true today as we recognise the political demands that Jesus makes, the dilemma that he causes, and how he belongs in the public and political discourse. Let me pray.
Father in heaven, as we look back over the last few years in our nation, we fear that your people have really withdrawn, perhaps out of a sense of despair, perhaps out of a sense of denial of what is really happening and how bleak some of the changes have been, perhaps out of fear, confusion, crisis, busyness with other things. Father, we lament the withdrawal. We lament the changes that have happened in many areas of our society. We praise you for the many good things. We praise you for the many new churches planted and for the life uh, that is flowing from them. But we pray that you would give us new boldness, new courage, new creativity. Please help us not to rely or to wait uh, for others, but to think how we can bring the message of the gospel to bear on this nation at every level, nationally, locally, individually. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I um, encourage you just to turn to the person beside you? Normally we don't go on um, as we have done tonight, but we normally focus on one passage in the Bible. But this is very much looking at a broader picture, isn't it? We've, we've seen from a number of passages next. Why don't we turn to the person beside you? One question. Just think, just a bit of clarification maybe. We've got five minutes. We'll, we'll finish for our last song, but we'll go five minutes, finish on the dot of eight, and then we'll go back and have some amazing truffles. So quickly, one question. Just a, a clarification maybe.